Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to this week's No Limits Mitrap Podcast. How you doing this week, Mike? I am great. It's playoff hockey time, so so you know, a lot going on in the sporting world. Having a good time. How about you? Doing good. We're wrapping up. It's kind of sad this time of year. We're wrapping up the the soccer season, which I, true. I love the soccer season because it goes so long. You know, it's like much longer than it encompasses both what the NFL season and most of the basketball season. Yeah. Um, so that's a little sad, but yeah, we're getting into to playoff basketball, which. I'm, I've really gotten into NBA. Um, Is that right? I guess the Caroline's family is big into the Sixers, and so you know, getting into that. So that's been fun following them. Not right. the Wizards. I could care. I've never like really had a connection to the Wizards. So <laughs> I rep for my Cavs, though. I rep for my Cavs. Hell yeah! I mean, uh, Mark's not going to be too happy. One of our patrons and listeners. I think he's a big Boston fan, but mm. it's looking mm. good for him right now after that double it overtime. Is. It is, but. Hey, I'm also really excited. We just wrapped up an incredible interview. And so I don't know about you, Chris, but I kind of want to jump right into it because this was a blast. Yes. I mean, we found the closest you can get to a real life Marcus Dumont. Yeah. How, how did you stumble upon, because you're the one who sent me the, the interview that he did with Rob Rooker. So how did you stumble upon, upon our interview today? I, I forget who posted it initially. It may have been a recommendation from the bus you know you can always trust the bus Mm -hmm. Uh, i think david posted something about this interview with a security and cybersecurity expert who was talking to uh, i believe a deputy director of the cia and that was the same time we had just read the dedication i believe in protect and defend to rob richer it could have been extreme measures no yeah, Extreme Measures. It was Extreme Measures because that whole book was based on the service lives of the clandestine operation. That's right. That's right. And so in Vince's dedication to that book, he he shouted out Rob Richer, who's really helped him through the process. And in this podcast episode, the Udacast with Matt, who we have on the show today, he interviewed Rob Richer, who was the CIA point person to work with Vince Flynn and liaise with him regarding writing the books. And so... The reason Vince got an insider look at the CIA and was so good at crafting his characters was because of Rob. And Matt got to talk to him on his podcast. And so we today invited Matt. And the really awesome news is in the near future, we are hoping to bring Rob Richer on this podcast as well to also get a even closer look inside the CIA. Yes. So and with today, what's going on in today's world which you're going to hear you know we touch on this in the interview we it's he's the best person to have right now talking to you guys about this so yeah here's our interview hope you guys enjoy it all right guys today we welcome matt devoe a technologist entrepreneur and international security expert specializing in quite a few fields that are related to Mitch and Irene, including counterterrorism, critical infrastructure protection, intelligence, risk management, and cybersecurity issues. Matt is currently the CEO and co-founder of UDA LLC. Thanks for joining us today. Yes, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your background, getting into those very many industries? And your career path leading to where you are today at UDA. Yeah, absolutely. 
uh, you know, pretty interesting. I grew up in a very rural area, um, went to a one room schoolhouse, so didn't get a lot of exposure uh, to different things. But, you know, if you look back, if you, if you dig back in the box of mementos that I kept from, you know, pre-high school, you'll find a couple of things. One is a Commodore 64 computer and all of the uh, interesting programming that I was able to do on that, which was kind of my entree into the cyber world, but then also a keen interest in counterterrorism. So there'd be copies of Time Magazine when airplanes were hijacked and things of that sort. So uh, those are kind of two interesting, you know, or interest areas of mine. And I, when I went to college, I decided to focus on national security studies and uh, computer science. And that was kind of a unique blend. Uh, typically, you had some computer scientists that were studying political science, but it was really around statistics and you know, analysis and things of that sort. Uh, and my focus was more on national security aspects and then coupling that with the technology. And also was a bit of a hacker. I'd gotten to know folks in the hacker community, a lot of folks who are you know, famous hackers even to this day, and understood what they were doing just from a learning perspective on getting access into phone company networks or getting access into the US Department of Defense or you know, breaching telecommunication carriers. And back then when I was in college, which was the you know, early 1990s, graduated in 1993, I had this aha moment where I said, hey, you know, our lives are getting increasingly dependent on information technology and uh, communication networks and this emerging concept of, you know, the internet network. And I know for a fact that, that uh, those systems are hugely vulnerable. So there's a new national security risk here. I basically started writing and speaking about, you know, what I saw as this new national security risk. And it turned out that I attracted a ton of attention to myself, um, speaking at conferences and introducing myself to folks. And uh, I did not know it, but 1992, the same year that I wrote my first paper on the topic and spoke at a political science association meeting, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense had issued a top secret directive on information warfare. Uh, and it mirrored a lot of the thinking, the things that I was saying at the unclassified level. So all of a sudden now I had invites to come and speak in Washington, D.C. and to go to National Defense University. And it was kind of I was treated a little bit like the equivalent of the guy that builds the atomic bomb in his garage. Uh, in fact, a, a guy who had retired from the CIA and had a, a newsletter, an old-fashioned newsletter. This is before email. He actually Xeroxed it and mailed it out to 3,000 people wow. uh, on a subscription basis. Got a hold of my paper, and he had this little snippet. He said, you know, you've got to read what this kid is writing out of his basement in Vermont. It parallels the deepest thinking, you know, at the classified level in the Department of Defense and Intel community. Uh, for a copy of the paper, you know, please write to him. I had just the mail address or call. And I had unfortunately listed my phone number as the Department of Political Science switchboard oh. um, <laughs> and uh, got 300 calls, you know, which and a ton of letters from all sorts of folks, you know, the fur, one of the first CTOs of the Department of Defense, these generals and admirals. So I knew I was onto something and I made that my career focus and wrote my uh, master's thesis on the topic of national security in the information age and how this was a new emerging threat got recruited uh, straight uh, out of grad school to come and work for a big defense contractor and build the first hacking team for the Department of Defense. So as a kid from Vermont who hadn't traveled a lot, that was a sweet gig because you can throw a dart at a map and you're likely can find some sort of DOD presence there in some capacity uh, by way of uh, 
either a direct base or an allied base where we have a presence, et cetera. Uh, and I had legal authority to go and hack into any classified or unclassified systems that the DOD operated anywhere in the world. So got to do a, a lot of things, you know, that were first from that perspective. Um, also built a team that was considered to be a, a coalition red team for the five eyes. So Canada, US, New Zealand, Australia, in the UK, where during classified military exercises, I had legal authority to operate as the red cell element targeting command and control systems. So now all of a sudden I could hack into you know, an aircraft carrier while it was at sea, uh, a nuclear submarine, got into systems on speckled trout, which was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs version of Air Force One. Wow. So it attracted a tremendous amount of attention to these issues. And this is you know, 1996, 97, 98. Cybersecurity is just starting to become a field, just starting to become an issue. Uh, and here I am you know, within the Department of Defense uh, in the U.S. and within our allies, raising the awareness around what the stakes were. Um, also got pulled in to do a lot of the incident response and some some of the big incidents during that time frame, uh, some of the state-sponsored attacks against the U.S. Department of Defense, some of the non-state. There were a few that were comically, you know, they're just majors, but we were briefing all the way up to the president that it could be Saddam Hussein in Iraq targeting the U.S. DOD, but it turned out to be uh, just a couple of kids uh, or three kids, one of whom happened to be in Israel, uh, thus the, you know, the IP being sourced from in the Middle East causing concern. No. So uh, that was really a catalyst for my career uh, because I had the political science master's degree, because I had the computer science degree, I could do the hands-on hacking and then I could go brief a general about what was significant, why this was important, uh, help write policy, those sorts of things. I decided to leave there to start the first cyber threat intelligence company. So we're focused on tracking what threat actors were doing and the risk that they represented to not only the uh, U.S. targets, primarily civilian agencies, but also commercial targets, banks, telecommunication carriers, company like Microsoft, et cetera, you know, the Citibank, Microsoft, the Department of Navy were our first three clients when we started up. Uh, so it kind of gives you the a sense for how broad the interest was. Um, and uh, after leaving there, spent a decade of my career building and running an entity called the Terrorism Research Center. Uh, the Terrorism Research Center uh, it sounds benign, and there definitely was some academic research elements to what we were doing, but we also had some uh, very robust uh, classified business within the U.S. government. We had a very robust training program that we built. We were training law enforcement uh, and U.S. Uh, and Canadian military personnel. We had a global fusion center that operated 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and uh, provided alert and warning to international clients, uh, you know, VIPs, high profile individuals around risks or things that were happening and served as the tier one crisis response for those incidents as well. Uh, and then the final component is we had a very active, because of my background, red teaming, uh, physical and cyber, we started to do blended operations. Uh, I would combine one of my hackers with the uh, retired Navy SEAL uh, and, you know, with interesting results because now we could, uh, instead of just uh, hacking from the outside, we could breach a building and get in from the inside and, you know, add an interesting element or layer to that. Uh, so I did that uh, wow. for a decade and uh, sold the company, uh, stayed around for a few years and then uh, got back focused on red teaming. I built a red teaming company called Fusion X that 
we were the guys that emulated the criminal and nation state hackers. So if you were a big bank and you're worried about computer criminals coming after you, stealing money out of your bank, we would actually play that role. We would use the same tactics, techniques, and procedures that the criminals would use, the same capabilities, and we would actually steal money from the bank. We'd operationalize the attacks, and that would raise awareness with the CEOs and the executives because they would. I bet they didn't like that. They actually did, you know. Once, once they oh, get, really? yeah, once they get used to it, and you know, a part of it too is also proving the impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sure. know, for example. Uh, CEO of one of the largest oil companies in the world said, I don't believe you could impact one of our refineries through a cyber only attack. So we demonstrated we could actually do that. We could get pipes to discouple and overpressurize and explode and get oil to flow on the ground. Uh, And then they would, you know, as a result of that red team, they would recognize that they needed to make more investments in cybersecurity. So I sold that to Accenture uh, in 2015 and stayed around for a few years running their global cyber defense practice and then decided to get back into the bespoke consulting world. So with UDA today, we work on really hard problems, you know, from helping with next generation red teaming to dealing with geopolitical, you know, type intelligence issues to helping folks do due diligence on MNA transactions. We get to kind of pick and choose the stuff that we're interested in. Uh, and produce content. You know, we operate a website, run a podcast, do all that fun stuff. Nice. We'll talk about your podcast a little later, but uh, it's it's been great listening to that. Um, but so what you're basically telling us is that you are you're Marcus, like Marcus Dumont. We found Marcus. You are Marcus Dumont. <laughs> yes. Uh, it. Uh, yes. Yeah. I was always the guy. Uh, you know, I kind of went into a, an all hat management type role. You know, running this diverse business, but I always. Am considered, you know, to the CIA intel guys and to the, the conventional, the SEAL, Delta Force guys. Uh, I, I'm the comms guy. I'm the security guy. Even today, I still run infrastructure for them, you know, because they want to have secure communications. Uh, I was the guy who always had multiple satellite phones and multiple laptops and, you know, took some of the first encrypted phones into the Middle East. I mean, it definitely was kind of on the cutting edge. And that reflected and the capabilities that we were able to build, particularly with the Terrorism Research Center and Total Intelligence Solutions, because we could leapfrog, you know, where expectations were. Um, you you want a satellite image of what bridge was just bombed in Lebanon? Well, we have a commercial provider for that and the ability to ingest it and analyze it and do interesting stuff. So we're always able to be very cutting edge from a technology standpoint. Well, it's just like the companies where you said they were grateful that you were finding their vulnerabilities. It's like having a Marcus or someone like you in the, you always want, you always want them and guys like you working for us as opposed to, yeah, absolutely. not against I, us. I stole a lot of money from banks and I always <laughs> gave it back. Uh, so <laughs> See, they're probably glad the, somebody would the, give it back. That's the differentiation, yeah. right? It's the, the analogy I always use for the field of red teaming is, you know, it's important to understand yourself from the adversary perspective. Uh, and I built a unique training program around that that I talked to in a little bit. Um, but you you understand yourself from the attacker's perspective is incredibly valuable. And you need to make that as realistic as possible. Uh, you don't want to impose constraints that you can't also impose on a real adversary. You want to have the right. same goals. You want to emulate the way that they're going to behave uh, so there's, you know, real value to that red teaming perspective. And if I attack you from that perspective, then I'm making recommendations on what you need to improve to prevent the real bad guys from coming after you, whether it's a nation state or a cyber criminal or 
just some computer activist. So they were always appreciative because we would help them find and, and reduce their vulnerabilities before the bad guys would find them. Right. So, I mean, you're almost the perfect guy to have on right now, um, especially considering, you know, the talk about the pipeline. Right. Yeah. Or, or, and total power. Well, we're, we're going to bring that up, but also just what's happening in current events today where we have, you know, the colonial pipeline, you go back to, you know, the blackout at, at Iran, you have, you know, power, the Texas power grid, which, you know, is, uh, climate related. Sure. Climate related, yeah. but also, um, what Kyle couldn't have predicted even better. So tell me, what do you think is the biggest threat that's facing America today? Like what keeps you up at night? Uh, are these, these attacks that you're seeing, are, are these scary to you? Or do you think that you can learn from, we can learn from these and, you know, make our infrastructure better? Yeah, we have to make our infrastructure better because definitely one of those things that keeps me up at night is the attacks against the critical infrastructure. Uh, We are so dependent on information technology now. You know, the analogy I always like to use is that when I was a kid and I needed to change the TV channel, I used to have to get up and go actually turn a dial on the TV. Uh, And today we have a remote control that is basically a computer in your hand that you use a communication network, infrared, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth to communicate with your TV or your receiver box or your Apple TV, uh, and you can change the channel. We've taken that same exact approach to how we operate our critical infrastructure. The valve that used to require, you know, a couple hundred pounds of torque with a guy uh, to open it up or close it off has now been connected to a computer and connected to a network. And that engineer can change the settings on that valve remotely. Uh, It's the same with the operation of the systems in the power grid and, and water treatment plants and sewage plants and transportation. So we've created this dependency on computer systems and information technology and communication networks, but without thinking through appropriately how to protect them. So it's left us in a very vulnerable state. So I get very concerned around cyber attack. I mean, obviously there's some existential threats, you know, on the the chem bio side and certainly nuclear weapons um, would be catastrophic, but cyber, I feel like it's one of those, you, you don't tiptoe your way into a nuclear war. You could certainly tiptoe your way into a cyber war that has real consequence. And as we saw in Texas, or even with the Colonial Pipeline ransomware, infrastructures tend to uh, cascade when they fail. So you have cascading failures that it increases the potential impact. So the ransomware attackers didn't mean to shut down the uh, distribution pipeline on the East Coast. You know, and I live in Virginia and I couldn't get gas for a couple of days. I mean, that was real. Uh, that was a self-inflicted wound because people panicked and went and filled right. their tanks when they- This year's know, was, toilet paper. It was anomalous behavior, but it was real. But the attackers didn't intend to take that pipeline down, but that was the consequence, right? Same thing, somebody trying to kind of tiptoe into a, a power grid, it could have cascading failures. Uh, it's it's a it's a resilient and, and also delicate you know, infrastructure at the same time. We never quite know. Uh, every decade or so, it seems like we have some catastrophic power failure, whether it's a blackout in New England or the... Uh, power failures in Texas that cascade and have impacts that are uh, much larger than we expected. The probability for that happening in a cyber attack is very high. And so that's very concerning. But we also have to be wary full of, you know, while uh, 
the Russians or the Chinese or the, you know, the Iranians or the North Koreans might not want to take down power on the East Coast. There are other elements, threat actors, that don't currently have the technical capability to do that, such as terrorists, et cetera, that are developing the capability. So we have this uh, interesting dynamic where those with the capability lack the intent because they would fear that we would respond conventionally or it might impact them economically uh, or there would be global condemnation. But then those with the intent are slowly developing the capability. So we have this kind of double juxtaposition right now uh, where that critical infrastructure is at risk. You mentioned those three states. Who would you say is our biggest enemy in the in the cyberspace? Are they non-state actors or are they one of those big three? Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, you could even, I would say there's two primary, uh, you know, it definitely has to be China and Russia, but with two different methodologies for how they view uh, the cyber warfare domain. The Chinese are very focused on establishing capability for you know future regional security type issues uh, so it's a tool that they put in the arsenal uh, as it relates to critical infrastructure attack uh, that could act as a deterrent or kind of demonstrate that they've got some power in that domain and then they dedicate a lot of resources to industrial espionage and stealing intellectual property uh, and also just traditional espionage you know getting access to data uh, they're getting really good at, at data science and deep learning and you need to feed data into those engines. And if they can feed all of that data in there, uh, all the better. You know, if I think about just what the, uh, I think it was 2015, I did a slide, you know, data breaches that lost my data. One was the OPM data, which was, you know, my SF-86, which is the form you fill out that's incredibly invasive. <laughs> that, uh Tells, you know, your name, social security number, all uh, your family. That was me. Your I was caught up in the OPM one. And then I uh, also uh, was in one of the credit bureau breaches. So, you know, all my credit data and so financial right. records. And I also was in one of the healthcare breaches. I think it was uh, Anthem at the time. Uh, so you had the health data type stuff. So I joke, you know, I had the kind of like the perfect trifecta. It was a triangle of data on me that you know could be fed into a system to compile a really great dossier. So the Chinese are, are actively doing that, but they definitely have the capability to attack the uh, critical infrastructure in the future. You know, it's, it's a card that, that they could play uh, as a deterrent when the U.S. gets involved in a regional security issue or something of that sort. The, the Russian are a little bit more dangerous and rogue uh, from my perspective. Uh, and their target, obviously, very active in the criminal space, right, as a feeder of money into their GDP. Um, cyber criminals are making a lot of money. They operate with the protection of the Russian government. That money feeds back into the system. But they're also very focused on winning the kind of the true information war, which is getting us to uh, distrust the institutions and infrastructures that we have. And to me, that's one of the most dangerous plays, um, getting us to distrust the institution of elections, getting us to distrust the the distribution of gasoline through a pipeline, getting us to distrust that our banks can securely uh, hold our our bank accounts, getting us to distrust our neighbors and fight against each other. So they really are focused on that, that misinformation and targeting trust, you know, as a target. We play right into the traditional espionage. Oh yeah, we definitely play right into it. 
I've been studying Russian information warfare for a couple of decades and, you know, things that they said they were going to do 20 years ago, they definitely have stepped up and done. Yep. Uh, and it helped that you had somebody that came out of their intelligence apparatus that is, you know, now basically the dictator slash ruler in Russia. With big data now right. and telecommunications and everyone being plugged in, I feel like we aren't even noticing it. You know, they are becoming more brazen in how they do it, but I feel like the yeah. American people in general may not even notice it. We're so caught up in what we see as the political climate and the division amongst ourselves. How, how much yeah. does big data concern you being in the hands of actors like Russia and others like Cambridge Analytica it, and different things? Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's a huge concern, right? You know, there was a, a speaker at uh, the DEF CON hacker conference a few years ago uh, talking about big data that says, you know, he had a great quote. He said, we are known better than we know ourselves. Mm. The data is able to compile and understand things about ourselves that maybe we don't recognize in ways that we can be manipulated. Uh, and they're running as kind of, you know, kind of pure form algorithms uh, that are doing this analysis and figuring out what are hot button issues, what are ways to attract our attention, what are things that we can amplify, you know, if they frame the messaging this way, uh, and they're able to exploit that. Uh, and the way that big data is today is that it's it's a very one-way transaction. You know, we put a lot of data into the system, but then as folks, we don't get a lot of value out. Uh, I get good book recommendations right. on Amazon, or I guess that's some value. <laughs> um, personalized ads on Instagram. Personalized ads on Instagram, right? But we don't, we aren't empowered as citizens to take advantage of that data. So what happens is, you know, it gets used for commercial purposes to exploit our behavior from a, a purchasing perspective. Uh, and then it gets used by our adversaries from the perspective of being able to influence us yeah. in ways that we maybe aren't capable of recognizing. Uh, sometimes even someone like myself, you know, I consider myself to be very sophisticated from a misinformation campaign perspective and understanding sources and validity and, you know, all that sort of stuff. There are ways that I can be fooled. There are ways that I don't understand that, you know, I can be manipulated. And that's a very dangerous thing you know, going into a decade where we're going to be collecting just uh, incredible amounts of data on us all. I guess to jump off of that, how would you recommend, you know, you're a computer, you know, we'll call you genius, you know, and, but for normal people, how can they, can you give, give our listeners some advice, yeah. how they can protect themselves, um, you know, from any of these attackers or just in general, what, how can we be more secure with our data? Yeah. So there's a couple of things. One is, you know, it takes a little bit more work to, to engage the privacy protections that exist in, in tools, but you can do that, right? There are alternatives to uh, using certain browsers that are privacy browsers. You can use something like the, the Brave browser. Uh, you can enable protections in the browsers that you do use to disable tracking, you know, to, to disable cookies, uh, things of that sort. Um, you can you can track and monitor the privacy policies for the sites that you're using, right? So having that awareness and making you know alternative use of tools using DuckDuckGo instead of Google Search, right? Some of the same results, but your privacy protected. Uh, using Cloudflare DNS instead of your ISP's DNS, so that they can't track everything that you're looking up. So that's kind of one aspect of it is is take the time to enable the tools. You know, for example, uh, iOS is rolling out the ability to uh, prevent some of the tracking yeah, associated with your you device. Yeah, uh, definitely enable that. Uh, people didn't believe, you know, I, I could do 
very granular geolocation tagging on people through that advertiser data, mm-hmm. not by their phone number, but based on their advertiser ID. And people didn't realize that your phone is given a unique advertiser ID that flows to all these apps, that flows to these uh, providers. And it was a setting that you you could reset. I mean, you could go into the settings in your phone and you could reset that user ID every day if you wanted to, to prevent yourself from being tracked on a day-to-day basis over long periods of time. So taking advantage of that. Uh, and then the other piece of it is is keeping the bad guys out of the data that you are trying to keep private. You know, the two-factor authentication, mm-hmm. um, preferably through some sort of authenticator app, um, not through SMS messaging, provides a tremendous amount of security. I, I've been involved in like, so many high-profile incidents that I've responded to for billionaires and politicians and even national security people where their primary email account that's got you know, 15 years worth of content and sensitive information is breached. And that could have been prevented just through the enabling of two-factor authentication. People who had stuff stolen from their bank accounts that could have been protected through enabling of two-factor authentication. So make use of simple free tools uh, and make decisions with regards to what products you use and what the settings are to enable the the privacy components of those. Uh, And that'll get you a long ways. Also, making oh, sure your great. password is not your cat's name. You know, this is true. That <laughs> might go a long way too. <laughs> yes, if you have two-factor authentication enabled, not as big a, a deal, right? It'll be okay. Even if they have your password, they need your physical phone in hand. Right. You know, to put that authenticator right. pin in. How about right. on the, the more of the macro scale? Those same strategies are great on an individual basis if people choose to commit to them. But with yeah. our national security, it also takes. You must choose to commit to it. So in our current political climate and the last, you know, the current administration, the previous administration, either way, how are we equipped institutionally um, as a country, whether it's uh, militarily or technologically or our oversight of financial institutions or utilities? How are we doing in terms of a more macro national security sense? Yeah, I mean, military capability, we have the best in the world, uh, right, from offensive cyber capability. So that's one thing that's going for us. From a defense perspective, you know, in the military and intel community, pretty robust as well. Um, But then as you expand out to civilian agencies, it gets pretty abysmal pretty quickly. Mm. (laughs) Uh, And then as you extend out into the private sector, you have some sectors, you know, like financial institutions, they've spent over 20 years focused on cybersecurity, tend to be fairly robust, not immune. Uh, but then you have a lot of uh, of sectors that haven't paid the appropriate attention to it. Um, startups. So still, still a lot of work to startups. You know, it's hard to convince a startup to right. invest in cybersecurity. Uh, I've done that. I've been involved in some very high profile, high value intellectual property. And you try and get them to understand like, hey, you know, the... The, the Chinese government might steal this intellectual property and they'll just produce your product in China. Right. So if you're willing to just say, I don't ever want to sell my product in China, that's fine. Um, but otherwise you need to put appropriate protections in place or even just some of the other infrastructures, right? We, we saw with the, the pipelines and the oil refineries and the power grid systems. I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done because we rush to take advantage of the benefits of technology without thinking through the security of it. Uh, the, the internet is a perfect example of that as well. You know, the, the uh, 
individual, Steve Lukasik, who was the head of DARPA when DARPAnet, ARPANET was started, um, was a good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, he's the one that wrote all the checks for this thing that eventually became the internet. And we were having beers one night and he said, geez, Matt, you know, if you had told me that this was going to be the backbone of global commerce and communication and, and, uh, and finance and politics, uh, we would have thought about security. We were just trying to create a, you know, a, a nuclear war resistant telecommunication network. We weren't thinking about security. We weren't building it into the model. So I always ask people, you know, we, we talk about the internet was a great enabler. We talk about the internet of things, bringing those devices into your house. You know, we've kind of missed the bubble on that. We haven't taken a real good security approach to that. What's next? We talk, every company I know has an artificial intelligence initiative right now. Uh, where they want to get the benefits of AI and data science. And I always say, build security into the model up front. If you think this is going to be a valuable technology or groundbreaking technology, build that security in up front. Uh, but it's a hard conversation to have. So I'm interested to uh, your take. You mentioned a couple of times, um, but how do you, important do you think politics play a role in national security? Or should they play a role at all? Yeah, they definitely play a role, uh, right? Because every, potentially every four years, you know, most likely every eight, we change the executive branch. Uh, is typically a platform associated with that. We see that even now with cybersecurity. I mean, just last week, the administration released an executive order that is probably one of the most broad sweeping executive orders that we've ever seen around cybersecurity. Um, we've seen others in the past. We've seen strategies in the past. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, it, it almost gets back to uh, to classic business management. You know, if if uh, national security is important, uh, you're going to get good national security behavior if it's something that you're investing in and it's something that you're prioritizing. So we can have an executive order, we can have all these aspirations, but if nobody is actually enforcing them, if nobody's actually stepping up to the plate to make sure that these things happen, uh, the policy aspirations are just the equivalent of vaporware. Uh, I wrote a fun paper a few years ago with uh, a hacker friend, uh, Jeff Moss, who's the guy who created the DEF CON hacker conference and the Black Hat Security Conference. Uh, a friend of mine that had been in the national security community uh, and then another technologist where we were looking at the strategy as it relates to cyber the security strategy in the U.S. Uh, and our title was, is all done but the coding, right? We've built the strategy, but somebody actually has to sit down and codify it. Somebody has to actually write the software. Uh, and that's where we've been lacking, particularly from a cybersecurity perspective. We also see that, you know, the government plays a huge role in kind of the perception of threat. I mean, the perception of Russia as a threat in the last administration was much lower than it is in the current administration. Uh, we see a different policy requisite around uh, what sort of enforcement measures they want to take. You know, are they going to put sanctions? Are they going to do certain things? Uh, how, how aggressive we want to be in trying to counteract some of the, the regional security issues. So definitely dependent on politics uh, to a certain extent. But now there is an element of national security when you look at it like military and intelligence community where the engine just keeps running no matter who's in charge. Right. Right. You, you have right. periods, particularly in the intel community, where you get a lot of people retiring at the same time, you know, based on some of the, the policy or oftentimes it's really just a, a disregard for the capabilities that they have or a lack of respect for what they bring to the table. So you'll see those cycles. Uh, but at the end of the day, the folks that are actually in the trenches doing the work, 
they they don't really you know care to a certain extent uh, who's in the White House. I mean, obviously they do because they're citizens, but the work is going to continue no matter what. So on the um, topic of politics, that very much relates to the world of Mitch Rapp. You know, one of Vince Flynn's shining examples of his style is those political committee rooms and showing Mm -hmm. how Mitch, Irene, and crew are just not going to take anything from any politician. They're going to go the extra mile to secure the country. So in the books, you know, the Orion team and Mitch Rapp and the leadership at the CIA that goes beyond one administration but continues till the next, they're pretty Mm -hmm. much our biggest asset in the fictional world. What's our Mm -hmm. biggest national security asset? Where do we lead? Where are we maybe ahead of the curve? Or what are we getting right? Like, what gives you hope that? Yeah, I I hope to hear your answer. There's a real (laughs) trap out there, but what's the real, you know, (laughs) comfort for the people? Yeah, Uh, there's certainly traps out there. You know, obviously stuff is over sensationalized with regards to body counts and tactics, you know, that they're able to achieve. Um, But we've seen those characters. I mean, you guys saw uh, my interview and I know you'd be interviewing him as well with Rob Richer, who was actually the CIA agent who was the um, person that was uh, that Mitch Rapp is based on. Right. So very active, all sorts of, of robust counterterrorism operations, you know, over the years operating in dangerous places. There's lots of other folks out there that have operated in those domains as well. So those people are out there that do exist. The political top cover issue, I think is a little bit more complex. Yeah. Uh, obviously there's a, there's a lot more accountability. There's a lot more kind of hamstringing some of the capabilities that get built uh, for for better or for worse, but that's the reality. But at the end of the day, we've got some really capable people out there that have done interesting things that will never see the light of day. Um, one of the, the most interesting uh, counterterrorism guys that that I know is my friend Kofor Black, who you know is uh, infamous for having been the director of the counterterrorism center at the CIA on 9-11. Uh, and then being the ambassador at large for counterterrorism at the State Department, he was the first person to hold that position. Uh, I had lunch with him yesterday and we were talking about writing books because we have another colleague who's writing a book. And he's like, I'm never writing a book. I just, he's like, I didn't do it to write a book, so I'm never going to write a book. And there are guys like that who had incredibly compelling careers in Africa and the Middle East and chasing bin Laden, you know, before 9-11 and, and running the response to 9-11 into Afghanistan that will never put pen to paper, right? And right. Uh, we'll never hear about them in the public domain, but they do exist. It's good to hear. Right. I remember Kofor being mentioned by Philip Mudd in the book Black Sight and a couple other books sure. I read about yeah. Yeah. that time period. Yeah. And Jose Rodriguez. Yeah, Kofor's, uh, Jose Rodriguez. Yeah. Uh, you know, the book we're talking about that's coming out is actually Rick Prado, uh, who, if you guys haven't watched that episode of my podcast, I'd highly recommend. He's actually, there were two uh, senior leaders, um, and by senior, I mean, like, you know, top five in the CIA, who referred to Rick Prado as the closest thing to 007 that the United States has ever had. Mm. Uh, so that's going to be a very interesting book. You know, here's a person who, who operated uh, clandestinely around the world, but is one of those kind of real operators, you know, <laughs> that uh, knows how to shoot a weapon, you know, help build the CIA knife fighting system, you know, has operated undercover in all these locations, wow. just kind of a real true badass type guy. Uh, but also, you know, an intelligence operative knew how to go and operate and blend into these countries. So 
that'll be a fun one, but it's not, the book won't be out until 2023. Mm. So make sure you guys have a heads up. Uh, yeah, definitely. So we were talking before we started recording, uh, you mentioned that you organized this a week of a spy school for your daughter. Yeah. And it's, I was thinking like, what sort of overlap do you see between the books and real world in terms of, you mentioned there are midtrap out there, but you know, so can you just explain to our listeners like what you were teaching in this spy school and, you know, a little bit more on clandestine operations that you know? Yeah, sure. I mean, the spy school is something we're doing for fun. I mentioned it earlier. My daughter went to a school in New England for high school that has a, a program that they call uh, Pro Vida. It's basically for life where you're, you're expected to take a week's worth of classes on a single topic to give you some sort of life skill. And my daughter created this curriculum that actually that Rob Richard and his wife came and helped to teach. And I came and helped teach as well for the week called Spy School that was teaching them not only some of the fun spy stuff, but also the geopolitical aspects. So the, the spy school curriculum we put together, we taught things like lock picking, getting out of handcuffs, uh, surveillance, counter surveillance. But then uh, we taught some sessions on cybersecurity and hacking, but also taught about doing geopolitical analysis and figuring out how to brief an executive. You know, the, the students were given some pretty tough research topics to go off um, and figure out. And they had to come and give a presidential daily briefing to Rob Richard, who was acting as the president and drilling him with questions. Okay. Uh, so that how, they would, how, what's the age we're talking here? They were high school students. Oh, nice. so, Let's put that yeah, in every curriculum. Students. Let's make that, you know, yeah. core common core, you know, curriculum. So, <laughs> so it was, it was a great experience. Uh, the, the students learned a lot. We had a lot of fun, you know, at the end of the week they had to each of the, there were 60 or something of these, you know, pro Vita uh, classes that were running in the last uh, day before they go on spring break at the end of this week uh, of these curriculum, they had to go on stage and they had to, you know, they might show a 30 second video or spend 30 seconds talking about what they learned or what they did for our spy school. We sent uh, two of our kids on stage uh, with a person that they picked randomly from the audience and we handcuffed them behind their back. And my top uh, handcuff, you know, the escaper was able to escape both hands out of her handcuffs in uh, six seconds. All right. And the wow that I got from that, you know, auditorium full of high school kids, they're just like, whoa. <laughs> and of course, the kid who hadn't been in spy school is stuck there forever, you know, doesn't know how to get out. We had to get the key and let him out. But, You're making the uh, next generation fun stuff like that. of the Orion team. Yeah, we definitely <laughs> are. Uh, I really believe, uh, you know, strongly... Um, in in activating that next generation right because we we need them i taught at georgetown for 14 years uh, drove into dc and, and taught a class and my students have gone on to do all sorts of great incredible things right which is always proud in fact i was actually walking in the hallways of the cia uh, back pre-covid uh, and i heard somebody say hey professor hey professor oh, wow. and it was an ex-student that, that ran up and it was working in the cia and the dia and, and fbi and they go and start companies and go in academia so uh, i've always tried to commit a certain part of my schedule to being involved with the uh, students oh that's i great. love hearing that so we we sort of mentioned at the beginning, but I want to know your commentary on what you thought of last year's book, Total Power, and how realistic was the, the you know, the situation. And, you know, if you were, if Kyle had called you, what would you have changed? There was a super hacker. Yeah, there was a super hacker. You know, he, and I, I know 
that guy kind of in real life, which was kind of funny for me because I've pictured him, right? He's not a bad guy. Um, but I know the guy who was like the super skater guy who's been talking about this stuff for 25 years and, you know, uh, has been the, the big evangelist. Uh, I thought it was a realistic scenario for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, it was that insider threat on the delivery of the malware uh, into that environment, which made it a little bit more realistic with regards to the scale that you, you would need. Uh, I've hacked into a lot of SCADA systems over the course of my career. They tend to be, you know, a little bit archaic and clunky and you got to find your way around, require a lot of domain expertise. So I like the fact that there was a domain expert that was an insider that went bad, that had access, you know, to, to be able to embed the malware. Uh, and then what I also thought was interesting was coupling it with the physical attacks, right? So that's right. taking out some of those aspects where you might have some resiliency or you might have some safeguards in place. Because with some of these critical infrastructures, there are still some physical resiliency components to them. Uh, so I like the fact that they did that blended, you know, uh, combining of going after the substations right. um, and uh, also combining it with the cyber attack. And the target by way of going after the power grid, I mean, that's the, the single most important. We refer to that as the, you know, the super critical infrastructure. Everything else depends on that. If that's down, things fall apart. And I think did a pretty interesting job of talking about the challenges associated with that, how quickly things break down. The cascading effect. Of course, of that, the, the cascading effect, you just don't yeah, realize. Exactly. You know, telecommunications go down, transportation goes down, our food distribution network is based on being able to transport stuff. So people start having, you know, not having access to food. Uh, and we saw that, you know, the irrational behavior starts to kick in. Uh, those are the scenarios I always refer to as the eat your neighbor's children scenario, right? Like that's the, the society breaks down. Uh, and especially when you have, we talked about earlier, adversaries that are trying to uh, reduce our trust yeah, in these institutions and in each other. When you're faced with that type of situation, uh, it it causes us to turn against each other, right? Because you've broken right. down kind of the social contract of we're all in this together uh, and you've gotten people there. You, you don't like your neighbors and you don't like what they posted on Facebook and you don't like who they right. voted for. So what would require a cooperative effort to to survive it, you know, becomes much more catastrophic. We, we saw that, as I mentioned, with the colonial pipeline, you know, with the self-inflicted wound there, we ran out of gas at like 60% of the stations in the state of Virginia. There was no need for that to happen. Right. It was only because people went out there looking after their best interest. They didn't sit and think, oh, I've only got to drive 20 miles today because, you know, they're not going back in the office. I don't need gas. I can wait this out a week. They thought solely about themselves and making sure that they weren't inconvenienced and they went and filled up their gas tank. And that irrational behavior actually caused the outages across the state, at least the state right. that I was in, Virginia. Right. So I should call my neighbors and start setting up a Manassas-like complex, you know, rap and Skip McMahon and, yeah, and everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So here's yeah. a maybe a more creative question for you. If you were if you were advising and Kyle Mills calls you tomorrow or Brad Thor calls you up and says, hey, I'm looking for the next plot. What's the next situation? What's the next uh, threat? Yeah, we've covered a lot of ground, right? So I mean, we've I think each of those authors has done nuclear terrorism. They've right, done right. biological terrorism. I mean, kind of all those kind of the, the the scary horsemen of the apocalypse have been covered. Uh, I think it might be interesting to have somebody that takes that kind of the AI approach. You know, somebody the. Uh, mm. 
a country builds a, an AI that becomes a little self-aware or starts to be, um, you know, starts to, an yeah, it starts to be a little bit sentient and, and misinterprets, you know, uh, misinterprets the programming that has been given. Uh, I think that could be a very interesting plot line. That's an area I spend a lot of my time thinking about. Uh, or it might be, you know, that the U.S. builds the AI, but our adversaries have figured out a way to engage in, in adversarial AI by going after the training data or kind of polluting it where it thinks, you know, instead of the U.S. being uh, the entity that it's supposed to protect, it thinks the U.S. is the entity it's supposed to attack because the training data got polluted along the way. Uh, and it went through, you know, the, the learning process as it built, you know, from this machine learning capability into a more sentient AI get corrupted along the way. So it could be some interesting plot lines there, especially when you start to think about uh, that we're looking for, you know, uh, capabilities around autonomous drones um, and other um, aerial warfare capabilities, even autonomous vehicles, you know, in, in warfare, et cetera, or even just the extent to which communication networks uh, control deployment of troops and orders and friendly versus foe, you know, the targeting in environments. I think you could have some very interesting and challenging plot lines uh, along that. I'd read it. I'd read right. it. It hasn't been done before, right? The <laughs> machine yeah, no, learning. The, yeah. All right. So one, one last question. We don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, of course, you know, we're the Mitch Rap pod. Can you tell us sure. what is your favorite Mitch Rap book or, or character or both? Yeah, I think Mitch is definitely, you know, my favorite character. That's what keeps us coming back. Uh, you know, I definitely have an affinity for Marcus, uh, given the fact they're both the hacker types. <laughs> and I've played that role. Um, so, so that piece is a lot of fun. By way of a favorite book, um, you know, it's tough. For me, the world changed quite a bit on 9-11. I, mean, I was running the Terrorism Research Center on that day. So I'd say maybe the the third option, you know, is kind of the, the last book before 9-11 um, is definitely a favorite, maybe not so much for the plot line, but for the fact that it was almost kind of read with that kind of pre 9-11 innocence, if you will. Right. Uh, right. I was a big right. fan of Memorial Day. You know, right. I thought that was fun. I love American Assassin uh, just because I'm a big fan of origin stories. Um, so there's definitely, definitely been some, some good ones. I, mean, I love, love a good thriller I come back to it, you know, obviously for every book, uh, it's a lot of fun for me to read and continue. And you mentioned Brad Thor and some of the others, a lot of great thriller writers out there right now. Yeah. What sort of media or books are you consuming right now or TV shows? Yeah, I do a lot of reading, uh, read a hundred books a year. Um, so That's crazy. I, I do a newsletter, um, Every Sunday goes out at 7 a.m. That is basically Matt DeVoe's take on technology, national security issues. And in that, I do a book recommendation. So I got to read 100 books to be able to recommend 52 because you read some duds along the way. Um, uh, By way of thrillers, uh, new ones that I am a big fan of the Brad Thors and uh, Mark Graney, the gray man, Jack Carr, I think is great. Uh, You know, know him kind of in real life. Uh, like the John Gilstrap stuff. I don't know if you've ever read any John Gilstrap um, with the Jonathan Graves story, that those are a okay. ton of fun. That's a favorite summer read of mine. Most recently I read two that I really liked that were first books. Uh, one was called The Shadow Intelligence, which okay. for me, it's it's an intelligence type thriller, but th- there's a lot of uh, great stuff. And like we talked about um, 
Kyle maybe reaching out to, to the hackers and kind of, you know, understanding how the infrastructure works and making the plot realistic. There's some, some great plot lines that are pretty realistic. There are some that are horrible. This was the first one where I felt like a shadow intelligence. It was like the true first espionage book that I read that was a digital native. Mm. Like it got almost everything right uh, in the ways that it flowed together. Just had this, you know, it was, it was a key component of the plot. Uh, and it made a lot of sense. So for me, that was a lot of fun. And you still had the geopolitical, you know, it's, it's taking place uh, out over in, in the Russian region. And you know, there's the, the threat and there's the private mercenary companies and there's the private intelligence companies. And there's kind of all these unique dynamics. Uh, another one that I absolutely fell in love with was I Am Pilgrim. Yes. Um, if you guys have read that. That for me, I just, uh, man, I really got engrossed in that, the character and having, you know, it's a, it's a, again, another kind of counterterrorism thriller uh, where they're trying to stop a biological attack, but embedded in it is this great kind of the crime mis- murder mystery. Uh, and that just, that really worked for me as kind of having that element of, of seeing that plot line come together and the character I really felt compelled, you know, was really interesting and compelling person for me. I've heard that's a great one. Took those good recommendations. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned it earlier, but how about you leave the people with a plug for your podcast, the Udacast, and anywhere else uh, they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Udacast is our uh, podcast. We're focused mostly on decision making, you know, unique, compelling origin stories. We like to hear how people got into the positions they got into, but then really focus on what did they learn along the way? You know, how did they learn to make good decisions? How did they learn to become a leader? Uh, where it's Udacast. Uh, if you just search Udacast, or if you go to udaloop.com, you'll find them there. They're all free. They're available in video uh, or audio format. And we've interviewed some great folks. I mean, I've, I'm able to dig in and, and talk to CIA operatives like Rob Richer and Rick Prado. Uh, I'm able to talk to guys um, like Nate Fick, uh, who's, you know, one bullet away, is one of the main characters in the HBO series Generation Kill. Congressman Will Hurd, you know, who parlayed being a CIA agent into becoming a member of Congress. Uh, Just all, as well as interesting business leaders and, uh, you know, folks to get those lessons learned. So definitely, if that's your thing, if you're interested in national security, you're interested in business, and in particular, how people have developed their careers and learned to make good decisions or be good, good leaders, I definitely would recommend that. Uh, and then, you know, my mailing list that I mentioned that I put out that I've been doing for quite some time is just globalfrequency.com. That is my handpicked, you know, every week. Here are seven to 10 links that are things that I think you need to know about the world. So maybe it's a development in AI, maybe it's a cybersecurity attack that took place. Uh, and then I include in with that uh, a book recommendation every week. So I bounce back and forth between fiction and nonfiction, uh, and I'm a pretty eclectic reader. So uh, I always get all sorts of compliments from folks around the book recommendations that go in there. Um, and I am Pilgrim and uh, Shadow Intelligence both were, you know, recently reviewed. Uh, I'm already getting good feedback from folks on the list relating to that as well. Nice. Cool. Well, absolute last one. I hear you're a hockey fan. So I am a hockey who's fan. Going deep? Yeah, absolutely. Who's going all the way in the playoffs? <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a, both of my teams are kind of bruised and battered. I grew up on the Canadian border in Vermont. Uh, and I mentioned I only got two TV channels. Uh, one was the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So Hockey Night in Canada, Montreal Canadiens. Yeah, Montreal. That's my number one team. The Habs. Uh, 
So I would love for the Habs to go all the way. They're looking pretty bruised and battered. Yeah. You know, Carey Price just played a minor league hockey game last night to try and get ready to come back from in the injured reserve. Uh, and then, of course, I've been a D.C. native now for 25 years, 26 Caps. years. So definitely a big, Caps. big Caps fan. Uh, my son is a hockey player. I coach hockey. So we spend a lot of time um, on, on the ice rink and then attending Caps games. I'm looking forward to getting back in there next season. Nice. Nice. Well, Marcus, I mean, awesome. Matt, thanks for coming <laughs> on. And uh, I learned a whole lot from you. And uh, it was great talking yes, rap. Very educational. And the real world. Cool. And yeah, no, my pleasure. Yeah. And good luck with the uh, the podcast. I've been tuning into some episodes. A lot of fun. It's awesome. So, great. Thanks. thanks. All right. Well, we hope you guys really enjoy the interview. And if you want more of Matt, go and check out Udacast, uh, download the podcast subscribe to his newsletter i'm definitely doing that i want to get those book recommendations and you know learn more about cybersecurity. I, I i felt very well educated during this is the first not, i've been educated before in interviews but i was like i felt like i was going to school a little bit for cybersecurity, so it was kind of cool i know we had jack carr and kyle mills but i gotta say matt is probably our most intelligent <laughs> guest that we have had on this show i think true. he's five times more intelligent than these two uh, podcast hosts combined even <laughs> with your doctorate sorry Chris. even, even with my doctorate <laughs> yes yes <laughs> although you know something occurred to me we were talking about the colonial pipeline i wish i asked his perspective on us paying the ransom the five million dollars i'm really curious i i that uh, that would have been a good question what message does that send because this reads to me like a proof of concept and if they got their five million dollars to me that's not the end game some hackers didn't want five mil i think like the fbi doesn't want you them to pay but the company has all the incentives to pay you know yeah i i wish we we heard from somebody on the inside maybe i'll follow up with him after the fact and you can always post yeah, that later that's a good guys. thing to uh you know when we send a little thank you email to it like we yeah. do to most of our guests um hey if you guys like that. the podcast though and you want us to follow up with matt on questions like that or even our discussion around the grid and what happened in total power. Let us know on social media that you, you, you like interviews like that. And we'll try to keep content from real world experts in their field coming at you. Definitely. All right. So next time when we come to you, it'll be uh, Memorial Day. So look out for our episode on that holiday. Hope you guys have a, a great weekend. And um, yeah. So wouldn't this podcast wouldn't be made possible without the support and help of our patrons including our special operator sherry f our special agents george matt don dennis peggy Catherine, ray bridget jeff and mark please uh, you know subscribe rate and review us um, using your favorite podcasting platform you can find us at mitrappod.com or using our twitter handle at mitrappod and as always just let mitch be mitch Just a disclaimer, this podcast is not affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster, but thank you to them for bringing us the wonderful world of rap. And the music soundtrack is Gorilla Tactics by Raphael Crooks.